Thank you. Hey, everyone. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much for supporting Talking Volumes and coming out to support Ann Patchett. I don't know if you know this, but there was a rather unpleasant rumor circulating during the pandemic about Ann Patchett. And now you're wondering, sex tape? (laughs) She hates kittens? We'll get into it in the interview. No. I was rather distressed when I read what Anne told the LA Times in November of 2022. I'm very glad to know that at the end of every day that I'm not going to be sleeping in a Marriott and I'm getting to talk to a ton more people. That was all about not going out on book tour. Staying in her comfy house in Nashville with her comfy bookstore and not having to come out on the road like this. She was suggesting she might never go out on the road again. And yet here she is, maybe, could it be that at the end of it all, she missed those Marriott's? Maybe in the end she missed us. Let's show her how much we missed her. Please welcome Ann Patchett to the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater. There is everything to be lost and nothing to be gained. Can we just put that in context really quickly? Let's. My father was a police officer for the Los Angeles Police Department. (laughs) My father was one of the uh, men who brought in Charles Manson, and he was also the person who picked up Sirhan Sirhan the night that he assassinated Bobby Kennedy. Until the day he died, people called and asked him to do interviews about that Piece, those two pieces of American history. And he always said there was everything to be lost and nothing to be gained by giving an interview. And that, that was really true. And you've carried that on. So. Dad wasn't trying to sell a product. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Uh, let's talk about how you were so nice and comfy in your house you know in what? Nashville. I want to talk about... <laughs> I want to talk about the horrible rumor that was circulating about me. How about that sex tape? I'm a little, you know, (laughs) there are many, many things that could happen in this world, Carrie Miller, and that ain't one of them. So I'm not worried about that, but I am really interested to know. The nasty rumor was that you would never go back out on tour. Is that a nasty, is that your idea of a nasty rumor? It's devastating. I was in more. Morning when I read that, I thought I'll never talk to Anne again on the stage so of the Fitzgerald sad. Theater, and here you are. Here I am. So it all works with out. my shiny new attitude. I know. I know. Okay, she told me downstairs that we could talk about her shiny new attitude. What happened? Honestly, what happened is I gave up swearing for Lent. This is actually, this is, I'm going to make a direct line. (laughs) My sister and I always do Lent together, and we decided to give up swearing and do something called right speech, 
which is you try to say what you mean as succinctly as possible and to not crank up the volume, to not call yourself an idiot when you drop a glass on the floor, to just speak thoughtfully and kindly. Okay. And so 40 days, 40 nights, I found it made a tremendous difference not swearing. I'm, I'm not joking, and I'm somebody who really ripped it up. You were, you were, um, you were that much of a potty mouth. I, I, yes, I'm shocked. Yes, no, really, no, really. Uh, and and what I found is that by not swearing, I just was bringing the volume down, and I started to think about the power of what we say and how what we say informs our thoughts and how that informs our actions. And I took this forward into book tour because I have been on book tour for 30 years. I mean, I, yeah, I'm 59, and I went on my first book tour when I was 27, so more wow. than. Yeah. And I have been talking about how hard and exhausting book tour is for all those years. Yeah. How I feel pulled, how I get sick, how stressful it is, how I miss being home, how it's hard to fly. And I just thought, okay, well, that's true, and I've covered that information. <laughs> and now maybe it's time for me to talk about what's good, which is people want to read books. And people come out and they want to talk about what they're reading you're here, I mean, I really appreciate you coming out to see me, to see Carrie, but you're here because you're readers, and that is such a cause for celebration. There is so much good in it. There is so much kindness. And by making a decision to focus on that and to talk about that, and I go home and I'm walking my dog, and people come up to me and they say, you're on book tour, are you having so much fun? And everything <laughs> in me wants to go. And then I'm like, you know what, I am. I am having fun, because I am making that decision. You know, I, I don't think I realized that you were such a secret, crotchety person. You, I mean, you exuded this calm, kind of centered, sort of, you know, serenity. But behind the scenes... Behind the scenes. You're like, I'm never doing that again. What is her problem? What? Yeah, yeah. and I just thought, cool it, just stop. Yeah. And part of that also has to do with Lindsay Lynch. Okay. And Lindsay Lynch is the buyer at Parnassus Books, uh, the bookstore I own. And she started working for us right out of Kenyon, she worked for several years, went off to the University of Wyoming, came back after she got her MFA, and all this time she's been working on a novel. And her first novel, Do Tell, came out two weeks no. before my ninth novel, Tom Lake. Oh, wow. So Do Tell. It's great. And I, boy, go out and buy yourself a copy of Do Tell. Because in the same way that you have to support your local independent bookstores, you have to support first-time authors and take a chance on writers you don't know. And it's a great book about the golden age of Hollywood, and it's a wonderful read, and it has a perfect ending, which she completely nails. But you can't go into work every day and stand next to a first-time novelist who's 31 and gripe 
about going out on a giant book tour where you fill the Fitzgerald Theater in the evening yeah. and get to talk All to Carrie Miller. All right. Yay. So, yeah. Yay. All right. In listening to the way you've described this evolution that you've been through, I wondered if you've brought some of that into the, into the writing of the novel because it seems quieter and it, it almost felt like kind of space out of time. Was it at all influential in the way the, the new novel came together? The new novel came together before I stopped swearing. Okay. <laughs> So I was completely finished with it. There were definitely things that influenced the new novel. A lot of it is the bookstore. And knowing what people who come into the bookstore want to read, it is not to say I wrote a book that people who are our customers wanted to read, but I also know what I wanted to read, which... Boy, dystopian fiction has been covered. Um, Really heart-wrenching tragedy, brutality, misanthropy. It's they're great, great books, and we we've got plenty of them. Uh, But a book that seemed closer to my own life and the lives of the people that I know, in which you actually love the person you're with and you love your family, and you feel grateful for your life. I wasn't seeing a lot of that in literary fiction, and I wanted, I wanted that. I wanted that. So that sense of happiness, thank you very much. <laughs> that sense of kind of quietness and, and centeredness in yeah. this novel, does that feel different to... Uh, there's certainly more of it in this novel, I think, than in my previous work. Although here's another thing. This is so strange, but it really does figure into the, the kind of vibe of this book. I wrote this book entirely on a treadmill. <laughs> you, I, I read you, that. Yeah. A treadmill desk. A yeah. treadmill desk. I had this I'm gonna instant be the, image of you. The spokesperson for uh, the Board of <laughs> Tourism in Northern Michigan and treadmill desks. <laughs> This is going to be so exciting. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I walked this entire book. And but what does that mean? It means to... it's one piece. It is a treadmill to Nordic track. Uh, it has a desk built no, in. What, not go... what, does the... <laughs> what does the apparatus mean? What does it mean that you were in some kind of motion or... Your body was doing something. I think that what my body was doing was making endorphins. I'm not even kidding you. And I'm not running. I'm not going fast, but I'm moving. And I had read studies. Actually, Margaret Rankel, who you must come see my friend Margaret Rankel when she is here. I, she lives, we both live in Nashville. We're really good friends and I adore her and I adore her new book, The Comfort of Crows. But Margaret was the first person who told me that there are studies that say that we are more creative when we're walking and it doesn't matter if we are walking through the woods or if we are walking on a treadmill, that the actual movement Mm. of it makes us more creative. But what I found is that whatever part of my brain 
that is saying left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, whatever part of my brain makes me walk is the same part of my brain that is saying, you need to flip the laundry. What are we going to have for dinner tonight? I've got to go get some green onions and I have to call my mother and maybe I have to take her. Did I tell her I would take her to Target tomorrow? I can't remember. That part of my brain, which goes all the time, I have to answer those emails. Does a dog need to go to the vet this week or next week? All of that is quieted on the treadmill. And it got to the point where I felt like I was stepping into my novel in the morning. Mm. I would wake up and think, I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait to go to work. And that's not the way I've ever felt. I had a level of concentration because all I was thinking about was the book while I was walking. Mm. It was the strangest thing. And then the deal was I would write until I really was too tired to keep walking. And Mm -hmm. I would go between two and three hours. And then I wouldn't let myself look at the book again for the rest of the day. And so when I would wake up in the morning, I was like, oh, I get to go back to work. And those things really did contribute to the joy in the book. You know, you've alluded to something that I've always wondered about, which is... For a writer being immersed in this world that you're creating while all the mundane things of life sit there and simmer and wait. Yes, yes. And And even someone at your level, the mundane things still, still wait. They are with us. (laughs) <laughs> the, the poor and the mundane things, they will always be with us. Somebody said to me the other day, Ducks of Newburyport will always be with us. I said, I've never read Ducks of Newburyport. Did you read it? No. It's 900 pages I know, or no, 1,200 yeah. pages. And, and my friend said, it. the Ducks of Newburyport will always be with us. <laughs> uh, and that's the way I feel about the never-ending tasks That are the tasks of all people, but I will say perhaps especially the female people. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah. Yeah. I was, have you read or listened to The Lives of the Wives? No. Who? Um, I was reading a, it's about literary marriages. And I was, I listened to it, it was really, really interesting. And then I was curious about some of the reviews of it. And I went back to the Guardian of London, and up pops this very interesting quote from Ann Patchett that you had given to them like years before, but they they pulled it out. it up and they stuck it on something that's else. That's right. That's right. The way we do. Yeah. The way we love to do. All right. So you said, I thought this was just really intriguing. You said, how exhausting it is as a woman to always be the one who has to make the food and change the beds. No matter how enlightened, how much of a feminist I am, I am still doing all of it. With every book, I think, well, if this one's really successful, maybe I won't have to make dinner anymore. (laughs) Are you still making dinner? Still making dinner, Carrie. What? Still making dinner. How could it be? Do you know what's so interesting I woke up in Cleveland this morning, the way one does, and I had breakfast with Geraldine Brooks because because I did an event yesterday with Kevin Wilson, 
And the, I love, and the person driving us to the event said, oh, there's a big literary awards ceremony in Cleveland tomorrow night. I said, who won? They said, Geraldine Brooks. And I said, Geraldine is in Cleveland? So anyway, Geraldine, I, I emailed her, and we had breakfast this morning, and she was telling me about a book that I haven't read called Wifedom, mm. which is about George Orwell's mm. wife and how she mm-hmm. did absolutely everything. And she said, is the most amazing book and as soon as I get home, I'm going to get myself a copy of Wifedom. I thought you might be curious about this, so I pulled a quote that I loved from Lives of the Wives. With an ego the size of a small nation, the literary lion is powerful on the page, but a helpless kitten in real life. Yeah, that only applies to the men. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's exactly, That's exactly right. right. You know, so my husband's a doctor... And, um, and a really wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person who doesn't do anything <laughs> around the house. And, and for the 30 years that we've been together, I've always thought two things. One, well, you know, in all fairness, you're saving human lives and I'm writing fiction. And you're working really long days, and at best, my days are five hours of work. I mean, if I am blowing it out five hours. So it's, it is right and proper and fair. But I also know that if I was a doctor and he was a novelist... <laughs> I was just going to ask that. Yeah. What if it was flipped? Yeah. What if it was flipped? I would still be making dinner. I would still be making dinner. I can't explain it. I'm not proud of it. I am deeply troubled by it, but it is true. Are you seriously deeply troubled by it? I am sort of deeply. Are you? I, Why? I am. Be, because if I drop dead tonight, he's going to starve. <laughs> um, you know, I have... I have plastic boxes in the closet of my office with big signs on the front that says, our wills are in this box. Your passport is in this box. Your birth certificate is in this box. He doesn't have any idea. I have a... I mean, God, we're on the radio. Yeah. I have a... Oh, yeah. Let her rip. I've got a drawer full of 20s in my office because he can't figure out an ATM. What? <laughs> Come on. He has an advanced degree from Oxford. He is so brilliant. But he just, the whole money thing. No, can just, this really be? It can. It is. It's called learned helplessness. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my oh, gosh. Carrie. Carrie. Oh, God, yeah, this is no. so bad. Um, yep. He won't give himself a COVID test. Because it's just too complicated. Or just better when when I time it? I don't know. Wow. (laughs) I don't know. Can I talk about how much I love my husband for just a white? Yes. Okay. All right. He can sail a boat. He sailed a boat all the way across the Atlantic. He can fly a plane. He has his own plane. He can take out your appendix. He can write a prescription for a class four narcotic. He can tell a story so much better than I can, but he cannot administer a COVID test on himself. And when he needs cash, he goes to the drawer drawer. in the house. And I'm going to be super discreet and not tell you which one. (laughs) 
<laughs> the panty drawer. No, I don't know. My gosh. So, Anne, how do you square that with your views on feminism? And yeah, I can't. What? I can't. And neither can you. You know, it's it's this, and this is true. Nobody gets everything. That's if, if you want to know how to be happy in the world, just remember that one thing. Nobody gets everything. And what I got in this guy is more than anybody else I know got. Wow. So that because means you look around your friend's husbands and ev- say, <laughs> I mean, Oh boy, did you lose out? Yeah. I got because the one he, cool guy. No, I mean, he's the best person I know. He's wow. the best person mm. I know. He is the person that I, if, you know, I just, all said and done, you get one person. That's my person. Which was something that I think a lot of us thought about during the pandemic. There, yeah. were, there were basically two outcomes. One was, if I had to be stuck in a house with one person for two years, thank God it's you, or baby, I really loved you when it was four hours a day, <laughs> but this right. 24-7, no, in fact, you're not that one person. So he is, and he doesn't make food. <laughs> uh, I, I asked him to help me once. I was making a cauliflower cake, and there were 10 eggs, and I said, just crack the eggs and put them in the bowl, and I had the compost bin out, and he's talking and doing all of these things, and one by one, he cracked the eggs (laughs) into the compost bin (laughs) and put the shells in the bowl, and I was like, so close. You know what I really want to know is whether your friends know what you think of their husbands and partners. You know what? I'll tell you. My friends have some great husbands. Ah. Would I trade? Would I trade? No. No. But they are great for their needs. They're the husbands that they want. Very diplomatic. Thank you very much. We're not editing this out. I just want everybody to know that. I like my friend's husbands. I Um, just don't want to be married to them. And it would be super weird if I did. (laughs) That'd be a whole other conversation. That would be a conversation. Could we go there? Uh, You just got my answer. Right. Uh, How long have you been married? Um, We got married in 2005. We will have been together, oh, actually right Right now, 30 years. So we, wow. we dated for 11 years before we got married. And then he got really sick, and I thought he was going to die. And I said, well, we should, I guess we should go ahead and get married so I could unplug the ventilator. And that's not a joke. I really, that's wow. where we were going. And so we got a marriage license. We had a friend sign it. I mailed it in. Turns out that makes me married. And, um, and then he got better. Wow. Yeah. And 30 years later. Uh, well, that happened that, 11 years okay. in. But I, I'm actually, that's really great because I'm glad we are married. We didn't live together before we got married. We'd lived down the street from each other. 
And I thought, this is, this is perfect. This is heaven. <laughs> uh, and then he got sick, and I, I sold my house. I signed the paperwork. We got married. And then he got better. Don't you think most or many women you know think that side-by-side, down-the-street thing would be, like, the optimal? <laughs> I have to... For me... That would be amazing. Well, you know, my dream was always to marry a fireman. No. I had an, uh, I'm one of my uncles is a fireman. Was a, he's a retired firefighter. But that thing of, like, he works for four days and then he comes home yeah. for three days. It's, yeah, it's a, that's it's hot, a, man. Right. That's really... That's it's <laughs> a honeymoon every time yeah. he shows up. Right. Right? And then you can have popcorn for dinner <laughs> those other nights. <laughs> right. Yes. And firemen all know how to cook. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So do you think you could have written the novel of the marriage that you wrote if you weren't 30 years into the relationship, as wise as you are about all the flaws and wonders of a long marriage? Yes, I could. Really? You know why? You were, I could see this on your face. I let her drone on and then I'm going to cut it off. Cut it off. Cut it off. Because I don't have children. I am not an actress and I'm not a cherry farmer. I make things up for a living. So, but there's a lot of wisdom in this. There's a lot of. I'm wise, Carrie. I'm wise. All right. I just, I, there were moments in this between this couple that it could have gone so many wrong ways and they each knew how to deflect in the best sense of the word. Yes. What they knew to do was to put the marriage first, save the marriage and let that other stuff. And And isn't that exactly what we're talking about? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And also what we're talking about in terms of book tour so much of life is making up your mind. Mm. Mm. It's going to work. You're going to be happy. You know, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to keep my priorities. Almost any situation you could throw out at me, I could say you could look at it from this angle and it would be horrible. Or you could look at it from this other angle and it could be wonderful. For example, a couple of weeks ago, we had a house guest, which is just could be the beginning of every sentence out of my mouth. A couple of weeks ago, we had a house guest because we have a lot of house guests. Wow, that's All great. right, and most of those people are here to see me. Uh, they're people that I know. Sometimes they're Carl's people, but usually they're my people. All right, so one great thing about my husband, no matter who comes to the house, he's like, this is so great. I am oh. so glad these people are wow. coming. This is so wonderful. You bring all these wonderful people in. That's number one. He's going to have dinner with me and the house guest. He comes home at 5 o'clock, and he says, our neighbor, Jay Wellens, uh, who also has a wonderful book out. Uh, Jay Wellens is the head of pediatric neurosurgery at Vanderbilt. And Jay comes over, and just as we're leaving for dinner, and says, I have a patient uh, who I have been taking care of all her life in Birmingham, Alabama, and 
That's, this is not exactly right. Carl calls me and says, Jay has asked me to fly him to Birmingham because this girl who he has taken care of since she was born is now 12 and she's going to die today. And Jay wants to say goodbye, and he asked me if I would fly him down. So I say, great, that's fantastic, go, that's so wonderful. And then Jay comes over before Carl comes home, and the house guest is there, and Jay said, I called Carl to tell him about this girl who's going to die tonight, and Carl said, I'll fly you down. Ah. Okay? Yeah. So... You can be in a marriage where you're like, I'm stuck with this house guest who I've got to take out to dinner by myself, and he didn't tell me the truth about making this flight. Or you can say, my husband is the kindest, Mm. most thoughtful person with a skill set that he's like neighbor, friend, I respect you as a doctor. Let's go down and say goodbye to this child because her parents are going to unplug her tonight. And that's on me to make that decision. Right. My decision is I am married to the best man in the world who made that flight. And that was a beautiful thing. But life, that's life again and again and again. You decide how you are going to read the situation. Have you ever made a, you know, a pretty significant decision? This is how it's going to be. I've decided that this is how I'll be about that situation. And then, and then had to say with the wisdom of more years, boy, the way I decided that and what I decided, I was way off. I live almost entirely without regret. We could sit here for a long time with me scratching around trying to think up something that I regretted doing. I just, I love my life. I love where I am. The mistakes that I made got me here, and I'm okay with that. I would say the way I made a choice about opening a bookstore with someone that I didn't know, and meeting her once and coming home and saying to Carl, I met this total stranger today, and I think I'm going to bankroll a bookstore. I've never (laughs) wanted to open a bookstore. I've never gave it a minute's thought. What do you think? And he's like, you're amazing. Go for it. If you (laughs) think that this is a great idea, it's going to be a great idea because your ideas are always great ideas, which, by the way, is the other thing about my husband. Uh, And I opened that bookstore without thinking anything through. And it turned out fine. And it turned out great. And it turned out great in large part because I just walk around and think, look at all these people who want to buy books and read books and talk about books. Look at these wonderful group of fantastic genius misfits who work at this bookstore <laughs> and just want to sit around and talk about books all day. And, and I'm so thrilled about that, even though I didn't think it through mm. and I wasn't careful. I never jumped out of a how plane much of or anything. That, how much of that do you think is luck 
and how much of it do you think is I'm just I'm just not going to be I'm just not going to be mired in regret even if it goes awry in some way I'm going to choose to look at that as a learning experience you know, I think to be a novelist, especially at this point in my career, if you're going to keep on writing, not being mired in regret is the hallmark. Because there's a lot of novels about regret. I know, but there are not a lot of novelists who have long, successful careers because, who are mired in regret. Because you write something and it doesn't work and you crumple it up and you throw it away or you hit the delete button and you just think, well, I guess I learned something from that. I guess I had to write that so badly in order to rewrite it and have it be good. I guess I had to write it terribly so that I would learn what I would need to know so that three years later I could use that in another way. That I'm growing and I can't always see the big picture, mm-hmm. but I can't regret it. Mm-hmm. It, it really would be hard to be a person racked with regret and make it as a novelist. The other thing I'm curious about, and I think, I'm trying to think how many talking volumes we've done together. Maybe this is our fourth. I think so. I don't think I've ever asked you about your sense of confidence and where, like, when it developed, when you really gained the kind of confidence to say, the path I'm on feels right. And again, I'm not going to be racked with self-doubt if I veer off or if I make a wrong choice. Or I was did, born was this way. You were? No, Does I really it- was. And I think that a big part of it is understanding I am very small. and the Physically? Work, no. 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 no, I'm no, I'm 5'7". seven. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> You're all that No, stuff. no, Are you? It's oh you know gosh. what? It, this is the funniest thing. I read short. <laughs> um, no, and no. I stood next to you. I am I five didn't... seven. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, people come up to me who come up to my shoulder and say, "Can I reach <laughs> that for you?" I don't know what that's about. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. What do you mean you read short? People think of me as being shorter than I am. Okay. That's, I mean, physically, I read. I have no idea what that's about. I think it's because I have small shoulders. I don't know. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm really trying so hard to hold on to the point. Confidence. What I am doing. Confidence, What yes. I'm doing, and in terms of confidence, I'm writing literary fiction. I am not solving the problems of the world. I am not curing cancer. I am not defeating AI. I am uh, I'm not solving global warming. I could go on forever and ever about the things I'm not doing. I'm telling stories. Mm-hmm. No one's looking. And, and when people say, oh, you're such a big deal, and I'm like... There are 14-year-old girls hawking mascara on the internet who have 20 million followers. You know, it, it doesn't make any difference. If I fail, if I succeed, it doesn't make any difference. And that's the way I feel. I proceed in life 
as if no one is watching. And that's probably why I can sit up here and talk to you about a drawer full of 20s in my dresser. <laughs> because I just think, what difference does it make? It doesn't make any difference at all. I'm trying to do a good job with the life that I have and the skill set that I have. And I don't want to waste it on regret. And when I mess things up, I forgive myself and just do it again. That's all I can do. It's time for an excerpt. I just realized I've not asked her almost one question about the book. <laughs> this always la, la, happens la, la. when I get to yeah, when I'm when I get a chance to interrogate Ann Paget. Um, should we should we describe so many of the people here have already read the book. This is you know this, this is, is the, a little unusual. It's yeah. the funniest thing about yeah. this book tour from the second day of book tour. And I'm not going to give anything away if you're just sitting there thinking, I haven't read the book. Um, people have read the book. Yes. This, is, yeah. I, this was unusual. And it, it has been very unusual. So um, this is a moment. It, it, so what the book is about is there's a character named Laura in 2020. She has three daughters during the pandemic on a cherry orchard. The girls are home. They're picking the cherries. And they're making their mother tell the story about her relationship with Peter Duke, who, when she was 24, she was an actress. Peter Duke was an actor. They met at a summer stock theater called Tom Lake, and at the end of the summer, she stopped acting, and Duke went on to be the most famous actor of wow. his generation. That was good. Uh, thank you very much. I've done this that more than once. really good. So, <laughs> so she's telling the girls the story, and this is the excerpt. This is a story about Peter Duke, who went on to be a famous actor. This is a story about falling in love with Peter Duke, who wasn't famous at all. It's about falling in love with him the way one will at 24, that it felt like jumping off a roof at midnight. There was no way to foresee the mess it would come to in the end, nor did it occur to me to care. I have long been at peace with Duke, the famous actor, but my feelings for the person who walked into my bedroom that first day at Tom Lake are more complicated. I've made a point to never think of him at all, except that now I am thinking of him. I am making one part of my life into a story for my daughters, and even though they are grown women and very forward-thinking, let's assume I leave out every mention of the bed, even the two sheets of paper that are resting there on top of the covers. I feel like I am on the verge of anaphylaxis, Maisie says. I'm serious. My throat's closing up. Emily and Nell just look at me, their throats already closed. The four of us are back among the cherry trees where the rain is falling so gently we don't even acknowledge it. How do you ever get over someone like that? Maisie asks. And what she means is that I must not be over him still, and I must never have loved their father as much as I loved Duke. 
Do you remember when you would beg us to take you to the county fair every summer? I want so much to make them understand this. How the three of you would not shut up about the fair. The fair, oh my God, I wanted to drown the whole lot of you in a bucket. You would needle and whine until finally we gave in. Your father and I would try to get you to come to the community hall and look at the quilts and pet the Angora rabbits. But you wanted to eat chili corn dogs and cotton candy and then get on one of those god-awful rides that had been put together by three heroin addicts with a spray. Rocket wrench, the rides that make you feel like your head was going to be flung off your neck by centrifugal force. And one of you would vomit on the other two on the ride. And then the next one would vomit on me in the parking lot while I was trying to clean you up. And the next one would vomit down the back of daddy's neck in the car. And then in the morning, you were all bright as daisies, begging to go back. Do you remember that? I loved the fair, (laughs) Maisie says, her sisters still mute with wonder. I turned to face my middle child. Would you want to go now? Maybe, she says, but she is 24, the age I was at Tom Lake. Would you say that the ride was better than being a veterinarian? that you'd rather be whipsawed by something called the zipper than you would have delivered that foal in the middle of the night? I can argue with Maisie because Maisie is logical and strong. I will always be afraid of waking up part of Emily that has long been dormant. I will always be afraid of accidentally breaking something in Nell that is fragile and pure, but Maisie is up for it. No one will ever have to worry about Maisie. I don't see why you have to give up one for the other, she says. You don't have to, I tell my daughter. You want to. You wake up one day and you don't want the carnival anymore. In fact, you can't even believe you did that. Feather when we are 
to a cricket song or floating underneath the stars I hum along the pull of your arm shows me where I belong so I close my eyes and enjoy the high oh This world heavy hearted Collecting sorrows like stones You have this effect on me I'm light as a feather when we are together And I thought You should know Disappear as we fly into the blue. You're the best thing I've found. Please say you'll stay around as we drift back down and our feet touch the ground. It's like that song was written for our conversation. I know. I mean, it was amazing. How did you choose the song? Well, I read half of the book. I just got it <laughs> this week. Yeah. Uh, but I know I wrote that for my family. Ah. And I know that family is important in the book. It just felt like kind of the right place to go. I mean, it, it had the carnival, the fair. Yeah. It was like I didn't amazing. know the excerpt. She and sat there that and wrote it as <laughs> we like, were oh, right. This worked amazing. out really swell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. So, thank you. It was yeah. beautiful. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Sarah Morris. You're listening to Talking Volumes at the Fitzgerald Theater with Anne Patchett. Her new novel is titled Tom Lake, and I'm Carrie Miller. Um, there's a point in the no- early in the story where Laura is beginning to tell her daughters the story of being in our town um, when she realizes something. And she, I don't know if she says this to the daughters or she just thinks this, There's no explaining this simple truth about life. You will forget much of it. That's so upsettingly true, Anne. I mean, I used to to wonder why my favorite grandmother wasn't more upset when people of her 
age would die. I would think this is one of the biggest things that will ever happen to you. But what she knew was that joys and sorrows and joys and sorrows pile up and replace one another. Is that right? It has been my experience thus far. Yes. And I think back about boyfriends that I had in my 20s and how it didn't work out and how I thought I would die and how I stayed in bed and cried and cried and didn't know how I would go on. And I'm not entirely sure I could pick those guys out of a lineup. (laughs) You know, it's just then there was the period where I was like, we'll be friends because I'm that kind of person. I stay friends with my ex-boyfriends. And then I'm like, wait, who? What? Right. It, it's the extent to which those people who I loved in a way that just made me double over, that I don't remember them, <laughs> is, is incredible. So the, there are moments of such joy and sorrow and loss and things that you think... I will never recover. Right. Or you think, I will never forget. And you do. You recover and you forget. I, I can't imagine you curled up in bed weeping over some oh. idiot that... Yeah. Did you ever curl you up over. in bed no. and weep over an idiot? No. <laughs> no. You're so tough. <laughs> so are you. Takes one to know one. Um, what about things that that feel like they were transformational in some, in some way. They happened in your 20s and 30s, and they changed the trajectory. They changed who you are. Sure. Do you also feel like they kind of slip out of, sure. out of grasp? I do sure. too, Sure. which is so weird. I mean, I think about when my best friend died, mm-hmm. uh, Lucy Greeley, mm-hmm. when we were 39, I did not think I would get past that. Mm -hmm. And yet, not only did I get past it, when I think about her now, and I think about her all the time, and she comes up all the time in my life. I wrote a book about her. People ask me about her. And I only remember happy things. Like, I, when I think about her, I just remember her being so funny and so full of life and such a joy and the doubled over sickening mm. sorrow of her death that left and just left me with my love who lucky wow. me lucky me mm-hmm. but i would never have thought that i would get to a point in my life where days would go by or weeks would go by that she didn't cross my mind and yet it happens. Wow. So that book is Truth and Beauty. Do you carry it at Parnassus? <laughs> yes, Carrie. We carry everything. Right, I'm, yes, yes, we do. I love it. You know I love it. It comes up every time we meet. It's just beautiful. And you know, there's a way in which I feel like I put her there. What does that mean? In the book. I put her there like a leaf, like a flower. And that's where she is. And I wonder sometimes how people who don't write books manage Mm -hmm. to carry around 
everything they have to carry around. When I can't carry something around, I write it down, and then I know where it is. If I need to go back, I could go back to that place and find it. It it reminds me of learning um, something about the research of how our brains react when we're grieving and how our brain constantly tries to map again the person that's gone. Reorienting that person isn't on my map. I have to learn that again and again, and that is the part of mourning and grieving. And you found a way to map Lucy, right? You found a place to put that so that you didn't have to constantly say, that's right. Yes. She's gone again. Yes. Yes. And also, I gave myself a way to talk about her, mm. which is what so many people don't have. Mm-hmm. You know, you've lost someone you love. You see someone and they don't bring it up because they're afraid of reminding you mm. that right. this person is dead, which is not the way to handle it. Uh, everybody would like the opportunity to say something about their mother, their father, their sister, their beloved, their friend, whoever they've lost. They're, you're not bringing up a, something that they right. have forgotten. But we don't give other people permission to talk about the people that we miss. And that book gives me that permission. There is an essay in, well, these precious days, there are a couple of them, but an essay about my three fathers who have all died, an essay about my friend Suki Raphael. And it's so fantastic when people come up to me and say, oh boy, I saw Suki's paintings. This is so fantastic. Don't you think about her? I think about her all the time. And we can have these very animated conversations. That is a gift I have given myself. Do you, do you ever wonder, though, with this idea that, you know, when you draw the memory, you're going to change it somehow before you kind of file it away again? Do you wonder about, let's say, your late father, how the vividness of some of those memories that you thought you would always have are, are you know, fading, diminishing, that's why I wrote them down. <laughs> Seriously. In, in a book. Commonwealth? Well, no, in These Precious Days. Ah. And there's a lot but, in that book about my father. I mean, I've been writing about my father for as long as I've been writing. My father was just so many stories. But I do feel like I can go back to mm-hmm. those places. And yes, things change. Mm-hmm. Things fade. Photographs change and fade. You do the best you can. That's all. You look like you wanted to add something to that. No, I thought maybe you (laughs) did. This is one of those moments where everybody is leaning over to their radio, tapping it slightly. (laughs) Did we just lose the connection? No. (laughs) Um, there's There's a sense that I mentioned Commonwealth, that... Um, you were writing, it's not autobiographical. Is that fair to say? As my mother said, uh, none of it happened and all of it's true. Okay. And, and that really is the case. 
my brother didn't die, we weren't exactly those people, but it is, it's a very autobiographical novel. And in fact, one of my stepsisters said, whenever I'm dating a new guy, just give him the book. And I'm really? Like, yeah, just... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> go ahead, catch up, and then we'll go out on right. Thursday. Really? And you'll know what's going on. Hey, yeah. God. Okay. Because I thought you would say... I make things up. That's what I do. I, I do in the other. Bo- I do in the other early. books, but that that book is very, very emotionally. It's very close oh. to what happened. Wow. Although I will also say that the character that is me, uh-huh. the Franny character, yes. and the character that is the famous older writer Leo Posen, who exploits the Franny character, I am both of those people. I am the young girl giving up the story, and I am the old, famous writer exploiting the story of the girl. Really? There you go. I'm the love affair of me and me. (laughs) When When I was on stage with Kevin Wilson last night, there are no words for how much I love Kevin Wilson. Uh, And he said, people are always saying, well, are you this? Are you Frankie? And he's like, yeah, that's me. Are you Zeke? Who who's Zeke? Yeah, that's me. Who's the mother? Me. And he's like, I can go through every single character in every book and go, no, that's me. 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 I'm just all of these different elements coming together in a book. Okay. It really blows my mind because we've had authors here who are like, don't you get it? It's not me. I wrote a story about... You really need to have Kevin Wilson on. All right. Okay, He's good. amazing. I yeah. know. You know, there are authors that hate to be asked, is the story about you? No, I write fiction. That's okay. what I do. So this is the answer. After Commonwealth came out, mm-hmm. I was interviewing Zadie Smith for mm-hmm. Swing Time. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in your chair. And I said... Swing Time seems like a very autobiographical novel. Oh, that's brave. And she said, it is a very autobiographical novel, but I am not the daughter. I am the mother. And I am not that mother to my children. Uh The mother in Swing Time is the mother I am afraid of being. And she said, autobiographical fiction is not what happens it is also what you perseverate on. It is also what you are afraid will happen, who you are afraid of being. And the doors blew mm-hmm. open mm-hmm. in my brain. Yeah. And in that moment, I thought, what am I most afraid of being? My a, next question. A bad stepmother. A bad stepmother to my husband's children, who I love so much. And at that moment, on stage with Zadie Smith, that was the beginning of The Dutch House. Because I thought, I can write a book about a terrible stepmother that I am afraid of being. And I had complete access to that character. And that is autobiographical fiction. Not because I am that person, but because I have spent so much time being afraid that something could happen and I would slip up and I would let those people down. Wow. Ooh. This makes sense. <laughs> no, this really makes... This is, it's a great way to ask the question then in the future. Is Commonwealth still your favorite novel? 
You said that. Well, at no, one actually, point. independent people by Haldor Laxness no, is my favorite. Of your own. <laughs> of your own. You know, I've never read any of them again. So nobody does. If you ever really if you ever meet a novelist who says, <laughs> I was just reading through my novels recently. Uh, Commonwealth was the book that I had the best time writing. And the book I could write, uh, just if you want to admire that book, admire the fact that it wasn't <laughs> Ducks Newburyport, that it wasn't 1,200 yeah. pages, because I could have just gone on forever and ever with that book. It was so much fun and so easy. Huh. Yeah. So the one that you enjoyed writing the most. I think that would be fair to say, yes. Okay. Although I really enjoyed yeah, I mean, this. I mean, the treadmill, it was something else. Would you read another excerpt? I will. From Tom Lake, written while you were on your treadmill. Yes. I am 57. I am 24. After dinner, the girls head out with Hazel, who's the dog, some blankets and a six-pack of beer. They have plans to sit in a field far away from their friends and watch The Promised Man, just as the last of the fireflies flickering in the tall grass turn out their lights. The movie is cause for merriment, not because it's happy. In fact, I remember it as soul-crushing, but because activities unrelated to work are few and far between these days. Benny will meet them there. On this windless night, the aughts have strung a king-size sheet between two trees and pulled it taut, they have a video projector. They call to ask if Joe and I would like to come, but I decline. They have no idea that we're living our own version of the Peter Duke Film Festival over here. <laughs> that one? Joe stacks the dishes in the sink once the girls have gone. I don't even like to think about it. I open the back door and shake out the placemats, wipe off the table. It's a beautiful piece of work, though, certainly Duke's best. My husband's sleeves are rolled and the hot water steams his glasses. It's so easy to forget what Joe is capable of. So easy to remember. Were you ever sorry? He laughs. We could be living in Los Angeles now. You could be on your third wife. <laughs> Come dry. He holds out a towel to me. It's not that I don't understand. It's exactly what the girls have been saying to me. Are you sorry? Don't you wish? But Joe, he was better than I was. Sometimes I wonder what he would have done had he stayed. You were so good. He shakes his head. You are so good, <laughs> he says, correcting me. That's what you're supposed to say. Were and are. Both things are true. You're spending too much time in the past. He passes me a dripping Pyrex casserole dish. So, tell me how to get out of it. He shakes his head. No way out but through. You were a very good stage manager. I was no Uncle Wallace. You were different, that's all. You were your own man. It's true that no one else would ever be the stage manager for me. Uncle Wallace took that part with him. 
But Joe had a radiant optimism and health that no amount of gray shadow beneath his eyes could diminish. No one thinks of the stage manager as a young man, but why shouldn't he be? God can be anything. You were strapping. And you? He turns and looks at me, a wet plate in his hands. I start to put the glasses away. I wait for him to finish his thought, but nothing comes. What was I? You were Emily. I could have watched you forever and never understood how you did it. I believed you every minute you were on the stage. Everyone did. I stretched up on my toes to kiss him, and he meets me. We were in that play together. It really is miraculous when you think about it. again you go come back tell me all your stories come back show me the world through your gaze come back I'll gladly lose track of the hours come back I swear I will not count the days Come back, my arms soft as they are strong Come back, I have prepared my shoulder Come back for the weight of you to press in and then pass over To me any longer than a moment The notion you'd be satisfied with stillness For any stretch of time Those illusions are not mine Come back a plea, more a promise Come back, no string The terms made clear Come back, should you grow Weary of the constant motion Come back, my darling I will be here Beautiful Sarah Morris. Thank you. Thank you. You are fantastic. Come to Nashville. We're waiting for you. 
You're listening to Talking Volumes at the Fitzgerald Theater, and Patchett is here, and we're talking about her new novel, Tom Lake. If you've read the book, you'll see who the book is dedicated to, and Anne, I wondered if you would... Here, I'll give you mine. If you'd read the... You know I think I know what it is, right. Carrie. It's just a couple of words. <laughs> to Kate DiCamillo, who held the lantern high. Please welcome Kate DiCamillo to the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater. <laughs> all you readers, all you readers. Yeah. Okay, so um, you've softened her up some? Yeah. yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Now you go in for the kill, Fluff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if Kate was going to agree to come on out, but she did. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, what does that mean, hold the lantern high? And then I'll ask Kate. People what? have asked me that so yeah. many times. And well, pe- people it's have a said, beautiful like, image. Right. Is she the Beatrice to your Dante? And it yeah. is that... Uh, that's exactly what that's you meant. That's exactly what and I then, meant. And then the other question is, like, how can somebody so short hold something so, <laughs> so high? high. Yeah, to like... illuminate my ankles, <laughs> because I am 5'7". Um, <laughs> So we, we email, we email in the morning and when you email me, you say, I'm off to the rabbit hole. Yep. And then when I was working on this book, you would say, you're off to the, I'm off to the rabbit hole. You're off to the cherry orchard. I'll see you at the end of the day. Which one sounds more fun? <laughs> uh, or, or like, you know. With more air, perhaps. <laughs> and then at the end of the day... You would say, are you still working? I'm at the edge of the cherry orchard. I'm holding up the lantern. Come out. Come out. Wow. That's beautiful. It makes me sound really... Profound. Yeah, it does. Poetic. Really poetic. That's what friends do for each other. They they hold lanterns and they make you sound better than you are. Yes. Yeah. And uh, can I also say that your new book, the Puppets of Spellhorst, mm-hmm. which is coming out in October. Mm-hmm. Who's that book dedicated to, Kate? Uh, who is it? <laughs> and, and don't worry, I can do it from memory, too, for Ann Patchett, who listened clear-eyed from beginning to end. So I was I, wow. in her, yeah. We were in, I call that your Florida room. I don't know what I you call it. I call it my den. The den. Yeah. And, and I, I read the whole thing aloud to her. And... Um, she really had some, good. some criticisms, but then you came down the next morning, and you know what you said to me? What? It's built like a Swiss watch. Yeah. What a Ooh, nice thing to say. That's true. Yeah, yeah. It's a brilliant book, and boy, you've it's, got a big treat ahead of you. This is such a great book. But let's talk about Anne. Oh, let's Yeah, not. yeah. <laughs> the friendship began in 2018. Is that right, Kay? Yes. You know, Anne... Um, truly has always been one of my favorite writers. And uh, I went to, I I had done a couple things at Parnassus, but um, I went and my publicist said, Ann Patchett is going to be bringing you lunch. And I'm like, no, no, no. I don't want Ann Patchett (laughs) to bring me lunch and I don't want to have to try to make conversation with one of my idols. So no, I don't want Ann to bring me lunch. You're doing a school visit. I was doing a school visit and Ann brought me lunch. And we, and we sat in these little tiny chairs and, um, and then she went and listened to me do my song and dance, which y'all have all heard. And you know, it's same old, same old, you know, naked rabbits, that kind of thing. And then, and then, um, and then you had not um, 
<laughs> this is the thing. I don't know if y'all know this. People sometimes think that children's books are just for children. Um, and uh, so Anne hadn't read any of my books. Do you want to step in and say? And um, then I, I went to my local independent bookstore, <laughs> and I bought a copy of Edward Tulane. And, and I have to say, all this was kicked off because Nell Freudenberger... After I met you, Nell Freudenberger wrote to me just out of the blue the next day and said, have you ever met Kate DiCamillo? My son and I just read The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane, and it broke us in half and made us better people. And I thought, I've got to get on this. And I went to Parnassus. I bought that book. I read it that night. And then I read every single book you had ever written Including the one that just me. said la Imagine la 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 la. <laughs> I read that. One. I read them all. <laughs> she she emailed me, and this is what she said. This is who Anne is. She said, "I was a jerk. I didn't read those books, and that's like that that showed me who you were more than anything." A else. jerk. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's that thing of just like owning, you know, okay, I, yeah, didn't, I didn't know. I didn't I know. Didn't know. And, yeah. and then the kicker is I was like, oh my gosh, middle grade novels. I love middle grade novels. I haven't been reading them. I don't have children. I didn't know. They were just so fabulous. But as it turns out, it was your middle grade novels I love. Um, don't, don't put that on the radio. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it, it, was, it was you. And then from there, we became pen pals. Uh, and then I said, you know, one of us has got to get on a plane. And That was me because um, they plane. make hot, uh, spicy chicken in Nashville. Yeah, and I, and I wanted it. And, and, <laughs> and we and, went yeah. directly from the airport to Princess Hot Chicken. Yeah, right. And then my lips were swollen. It was so hot. And so, yeah. 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 I think you... Is there ha- a, do you want to say something? No. <laughs> Let it all roll. And I, I think you... I'm sure you've thought about this. You've probably written about it. You, you have such a gift for cultivating friendship. And I think that gets more difficult the further we get from those tight friendships that we had when we were adolescents. But you... You just really know how to do this. You're very generous in your friendships, too. I love my friends. And you have more friends than anybody I know. And you have fantastic... Carrie's going to find that hard to believe. You have fantastic (laughs) friendships. But that is also one of the great things about the bookstore. All my friends come and visit. Because everybody is on book tour. And I not only get to meet new people and make new friendships, and that's really the trick as we get older, that you just get to fall in love with brand new people. But then you also get to make a space for those friendships around work. And again, if I can just continually drop Kevin Wilson's name, (laughs) that somebody said, oh, would you and Kevin come and do this show in Cleveland? 
And, and Kevin and I were both like, oh my gosh, we can ride on a plane together. We can eat our meals together. We can sit up all night and talk and talk and talk. And then we can go on stage without preparing anything and just keep talking. <laughs> right. uh, and I get to do that with people. Either I'm interviewing them at the store or we make a trip together. And I just have a lot of opportunities to keep my friendships going. And that's fantastic. But Kate, I think it takes a, I, I think it takes a generosity of spirit. It absolutely to, does. Yes. And I, it, yes, it, and um, uh, you give of yourself, and that um, yeah, clear. Well, so I, do you? So yeah. Do you. Well, well, let's not have a toss down here. But it's just like <laughs> it, it. You know, it just it is. It, I'm glad that you said that because that is true. She is open, and that. That clear-eyed thing is so true. You see people, you help people see themselves, and uh, it is a rare gift. So, yeah. thank you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, but also, writing is a very isolating right. profession. Yeah. So when you do connect, it's it's the equivalent to having peers at the office. Mm-hmm. You know, this this is my water cooler friend, <laughs> as well, because we're doing the same thing. And how many times? Do we call each other and say, there's nobody I can talk to about this right. except you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's, a, that's an incredible so gift. So that's what I was curious about is, <laughs> what do the conversations sound like? When, you, you know, when there is one person you can really yeah. turn to... They, to ask about. They yeah. are super, super wide-ranging. I also just want to say, apropos of nothing, Carl loads the dishwasher every night her husband <laughs> does. So, I mean, I was just like, I want to get that out there. All right. He does it without being asked. He does it instinctually. Is that not You're so? You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. He does a brilliant um, job He's with completely redeemed. Yeah. All right. <laughs> So <laughs> everybody loves Carl. Is that not true? Yeah, that right. is very true. Um, but it is this thing where what do we talk about? Yeah, that's it. That's why I went to Carl for a minute because Carl's the one that pointed this out to me one time when I was calling to ask him a medical question about myself. Um, and he's it, it's <laughs> all my friends do, and he's so great about it. Oh my it. gosh! He, yeah. Um, we talk about everything. It is just like he, he said this to me, that you, you and Anne, it's like every... I'm so glad that Anne has you and that you have Anne because wow. you talk about everything. So, yes, it's about writing. Yes, it's about, you know, how can we put books in people's hands, like other... You know, just like this whole compulsion that we both feel that... Um, the right book in uh, the right hands at the right time can save somebody's life. We're talking all the time about how we can do that. And then we're also, like, talking about, like, well, what would you do about getting the new roof? And then we're talking about, like, remember when, you know, like, <laughs> just everything. And just, answering the mail. We talk a lot about the mail. Yeah. Yeah. You mean the mail from readers? Yeah. Yeah. We talk what, a lot about the mail. What do you say about that? It can break your heart it's so loving and beautiful and personal and then other times really nuts uh and and you just think do i need to do something about this or can i just put it in the trash you know it's the full range but that's i can talk to her about that she can talk to me about that kate you get mail like that too 
that is No, I just read gets... Anne's mail. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> she what do now, you mean do I get mail? She's hired you to... <laughs> <laughs> do you get mail like... Uh, this breaks my heart. Absolutely. And, and those, and that uh, is, it is another thing. It's like, I will, I'll take pictures of those letters yeah. and send them to you. And like, w- w- this was like a, I got a batch of really heartbreaking ones, like two, when you started your tour. Yeah. And you're like, I can't read these now. I'm on a plane. Why are you sending me those? So, yeah. but it, it is, it's a place to put all of that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So before we open it up for questions from the audience, what book are you hand-selling at Parnassus that... Do Tell by Lindsay Lynch. Okay. I mean, that, that really is my book right now. Uh, Heaven and Earth Grocery by James yes. McBride. Yes. I absolutely yes. love. Yes. Crook Manifesto by Colson Whitehead. It's very hard for me to think about books that you could actually buy right now because the books that I am reading won't be published for five months. Uh, Eun Lee's Wednesday's Child, which just came out, is terrific. Jill Lepore's The Mm -hmm. Deadline, Mm -hmm. I loved. Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieterer. You got some applause for that one. 35 copies of that book so that every person who works at Parnassus could read it and in November we're having a book club about it. Please read that book. It's about what what can we possibly do about the art that we loved that's made by people who we now know to not be good people. Mm -hmm. And there are no answers but she looks at every aspect. I love the sound. I, I know. know. Wasn't that made. great? It was quite mm. the murmur. You're yeah, like, yeah. oh, I've yeah, been yeah, dealing yeah, with that. that. Yeah, and yeah. in the bookstore, <laughs> in the back room at the bookstore, this is what we're talking about all the time. What do we do? I what know. do we do with these it's, people, with it's... these feelings? How much we love the art, how much we don't love the artist well, anymore. Well, what are you doing about that? <sighs> I'm reading Claire Dieter. What are yeah, you doing? Yeah. Kate, I'm what are you doing, doing what you it? tell me to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, both of you. Both of you. But I, I wanted to add one to your, like, Please. to go away from monsters Wait a minute. For wait, a minute. wait. Uh, what, what, are, what do you do about that? That she completely... I, I don't it's know. So it, it is I a know. conundrum. It is a so conundrum. Hard. Because I will tell you that, like, as people, you know, sitting up here writing stories... I know how deeply flawed a person I am, and it's horrifying to think that anybody would think that I'm anything but deeply flawed, right? And so, but there's also a difference between being deeply flawed and being Picasso, and that's a lot of what she. she, The brilliance of this book is she doesn't come up with an answer, but one of the chapters that I love the most is a defense of Lolita. And wow. how Nabokov was not a monster, but was writing about one so fearlessly because he was, in fact, saving the child by explaining the monster. It is the most wow. incredible wow. defense of that book. And again, she is coming at it from every possible angle. It is a brilliant piece of writing. Thrilling. And the kind of thing that if I didn't 
own a bookstore, mm-hmm. I may mm-hmm. never have found. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, great. Book that you are telling all your friends about. Um, I, I don't know that it's out yet, um, but Anne sent me an ARC, and it should be out soon, Alice McDermott's Absolution. November. November, yeah. yeah. Please go and get it. That's it the, is that just, is the I, best book it, of the year. Yeah, it, it haunts me. Yeah. 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 Okay, let's take some questions right. from the audience. Woo, okay. Just make them all for her, okay? <laughs> That's what she's here for. Look at all you readers. Like, if you'll yeah. raise your hands. Yeah. Readers. Yeah. All the way up to the top. Yeah. Do we have a microphone up there? I, Boy, I hear, so. I just see you waving. I see you, but all maybe right. you're just waving affectionately. Yes, maybe you're all yes, Tom. <laughs> right down there. Hey, great. Hello. Hi. Hi, uh, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, my name is Lona. Uh, I, you mentioned um, that you talked about how you, are, you wrote about your mom and that you could like think of her only with love in your heart and then think about all the good things that are there. What, have you ever come across a situation where um, by doing that it compels you to think about that person in in a way that's different, that you can't find the good, not because they weren't good, but because their life was so really difficult that you had, and you witnessed that. You watched them have a very difficult life, and then you put that down in paper, maybe, and then you have to dwell on that. I'm curious if that's a juxtaposition you've experienced. Okay, I didn't say that about my mom. I said that about my best friend, Lucy Greeley. Oh, I'm sorry. You're no, right. No, that's, that's all right. Just, that's it's correct. just a little different. Yep, it matters. It matters, um, absolutely. But Probably because I'm asking about my mom right now. It could so. be that. There it you could go. Be, we just had a moment of transference. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, my stepfather, Mike, who I grew up with, who was somebody that I really loved, but was a really difficult guy. And I think that I wrote uh, at several points about the difficulty that that he was in my life. And I, I put it down, and I also loved him. If I was talking about someone that I just flat out couldn't stand, I don't think I've had the experience of writing about someone who I was deeply, completely troubled by. Do you want to take a shot at this one? No, I think it's really difficult. And, you know, I'm writing about rabbits and mice, so it's like... <laughs> doesn't... Hove into view. <laughs> Note to self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Write about rabbits and mice. Yeah. Right. And naked rabbits. <laughs> Every time I write nonfiction and then I go back to fiction and I think, oh, this is so much better. <laughs> yeah, right. So much better to be able to write and not worry mm-hmm. about anybody's feelings. Question up there in the second balcony. Hi, Anne. Thanks so much for coming to St. Paul. Happy. One of my favorite books of all time is State of Wonder. Mm, thank you. You weave this beautiful story that has two of my favorite topics, which are science and Minnesota. <laughs> those are not popular topics for novels. <laughs> Can you tell me how those came to be in the story? Yes. I went to hear Richard Powers give a talk at Vanderbilt And he said in the talk, I wish more people wrote about science. Uh And I thought, I want to do whatever Rick Powers wants me to do. Oh, yeah. 
I just oh, yes. like, oh yeah, okay, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not joking. That was the point at which I thought, yes, science. And as far as starting the book in Minnesota, my sister was living, or I think my sister just left Minnesota, but she lived here for a long time. But I was thinking, what is the place in this country that seemed farthest away from the Amazon in every way? <laughs> and, and it was Minnesota. I mean, really, Tennessee, not that far away in a lot of ways. So that's how that happened. Do you know Richard Powers? Yeah. Now that you... I do. He is... He is. Just. Just. <laughs> Look, we had that conversation, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. We did. Mm-hmm. Okay, question <laughs> right down... No, down there, Cal, or oh, oh, over there? Carrie, it's okay. me. Any, if you want to raise your hand and you have a question down here, just let Kelly know. She's got a mic. I just have a really simple question. Why have none of your books been made into movies? Because you just didn't watch them. Uh, The Patron Saint of Liars was a CBS Monday night movie of the week, Missy. (laughs) (laughs) And Bel Canto was a movie that was only shown on international flights (laughs) for two months. Never streamed. Never have I met anyone who saw that movie unless it was on an international flight. So there. (laughs) What happened? What? We, that's a whole other interview. That was, that was a long one. And we know the the movie was perfectly fine. And everybody that I knew who saw it said, it's fine. And when I finally saw it, because I didn't see it until it was out. And I was like, it was fine. And it was just, that's what it was. It was fine. But that's not sufficient. It's, it's fine. It, but go see it. Well, you can't go see it. <laughs> it does not exist. It was scrubbed. That's crazy. Yeah, but it was fine. It but was not scrubbed. anything more than fine. It doesn't exist Why anywhere. would it vanish completely? I have no idea. Perhaps it was <laughs> a secret cabal to just get rid of... <laughs> The film Jeez. of Bel Canto. You missed nothing. Such a good novel. Read the book. You missed nothing. You okay. Question right up there in the balcony. Thank you very much for visiting Minnesota, even though it's nice this time of year. It's I beautiful. And I usually come when it's crummy, and I come yeah. and see her. Yeah. You live, you write, and you own a small business in a red state, namely Tennessee. Yeah. How, do you, how does your bookstore deal with book bans or pushback against carrying certain volumes? I am, this is just the greatest joy of my life right now, that everywhere I go, especially on television, somebody gives me the opportunity to talk about book banning. Book banning is so alive and well in Tennessee, and most of the books aren't banned. They are banned pending review, which means that people aren't actually reading them. They mean to get around to reading them. Yep. Uh, Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree, 902 pages, has been banned. Do we think that somebody actually read that book? I read that book. Did you read that book? No. It's really spectacular. Do I think there was a high school student out there who was going to read that book? No, I don't. Do you know what else was banned in Tennessee? Brave Irene. By William Steig. William Steig? uh, William Steig? A story about a little girl who takes a ball gown to a duchess in a snowstorm. 
and everything else in between, including Beloved and the Bluest Eye and every LGBTQ book you could possibly imagine and Jackie Woodson's backlist. And boy, oh boy, it is a massive distraction from what we should be talking about, which is guns. Because... The state of Tennessee, the state of Tennessee is keeping children safe from the bluest eye and drag queens while bringing guns in. I have left so many restaurants because people are walking in with guns. Can you, can you carry? Yes. You can carry, open carry here? You can. It's. Conceal carry. Oh, conceal carry, but everybody in Tennessee, you know, it makes you feel like a man when you actually strap it onto your thigh. And then they buy badges. This is the craziest thing. So they stick a badge on their belt. Anyway, because books are banned pending investigation and that you can be arrested for selling obscene material... But to, to children, but no one will tell you what obscene material is, which means that we just began to police ourselves and that teachers and librarians began to drop books from curriculum for fear that people are going to come in and bust them, which, you know, they say, well, we could arrest you for that. And I don't mean to sound all Clint Eastwood about this, but oh my God, come get me. Because that really is the hill I want to die on. It's ridiculous that when every kid... No, don't stop clapping. Stop clapping and listening to me, listen to me talk. When every kid in the school has a phone where they can download the book that they don't want to read anyway because they want to play a video game. But we're spending all of this energy, both because it inflames both sides of the conversation. Now I'm going to say something really controversial. Don't tell anybody what they should and should not read. If you mean that from a conservative point of view or a liberal point of view. Do not shame anyone for reading American Dirt by Janine Cummings unless you have read it yourself. Right on. It is a beautiful, important book. Do not shame anyone for reading Lolita. Do not sit around and talk about how horrible book banning is in Tennessee if you are making it difficult for people to feel good about what they're choosing to read. Let people choose the books they want to read and make their own decisions and put your energy into gun safety. Thank you. Kate, have you had any of your books put on the a banned list? Somebody told me something the other day that um, I think it was Despero, um, and it's like, really? I don't know why. I don't know why. I just, I wish I could be Ann Patchett. Um, I just, I, every time this comes up, um, 
I, and I, I think I've said this to you, at, at the National, uh, at the Smithsonian, the National Portrait Gallery, there is a fantastic uh, uh, portrait of Toni Morrison. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever seen it. If you, if it, I, I happened to be in there standing in front of it, and there was this young couple standing next to me, and the guy said to me, it feels like we're being called to account. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so every time this comes up, I, I think of that, and I think, I think about the bluest eye not being, it makes me cry, mm-hmm. not being in high schools in Florida and I just think, I, and I don't know what to do, and I wish I could be Anne, um, and I'm not. I just know that, um, I know for a fact that books save lives. And um, to find yourself in a book, or to find who you can become in a book, um, or to find that it is okay to be yourself, that's what books, and maybe that's why Despero, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And to so. see how it is for a mouse. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and, and to see, to, to learn compassion, to learn empathy, to see how other people live. Anna Karenina is not going to make you throw yourself under a train. Right. <laughs> Another question right back there on the main level. Hello. Um, I'm struck by the length of time you've toured, and I'm curious if you have any insights about the ways you've noticed readers engaging with your work differently or how it's changed over the years. There are more people engaging with my work now than there used to be. That's (laughs) changed over the years. You know, the the only thing that I can say that is weird that I have seen a change in and I think that this is the whole parasocial culture of Taylor Swift, is that when people order books from Parnassus and they order signed copies and there's a comment section about what they want me to write in their book and that people will say, I want Anne to say this. Dear Sally, thank you so much for reading my books. I will be in, I'm not joking, I will be indebted to you until I die. Oh my God. I am so grateful that you have stood by me. There will never be enough days for me to thank you for reading my book. Sincerely, Ann Patchett. I am not. She's not. I am not. She's not. (laughs) That particular phenomenon over and over and over and over and over again, it just kind of blows my mind. Because I am very happy to thank people, but it's, well, it's crazy. But, I mean, also I get, dear Susan, and this is Susan who's ordering the book. Dear Susan, you are brilliant and beautiful and beloved of your family and friends. I could only wish that someday I would be half the person you are. Oh my God. Wait a minute. What does that have to do with Taylor Swift? Because I think that people now feel this fan icon connection. That she's brought fans she's, so close yes, to yes. her And that people celebrity. feel this interesting sense of ownership of the person. I don't wow. think that people ever ordered a John Updike book <laughs> and asked him 
to write that in the book. I'm no John Updike, but you know, it's uh, that that sort of throws me for a loop. But otherwise, everything's great. <laughs> Boy, that's that's that is entitlement. Do I write it in the book for them? You know, it depends on what the day is and how I'm holding up. I'll tell you, there was, there was one, every now and then I'm like, okay, that, you know, I wonder where the line is, and then I'm like, oh, and it says, you know, to my best friend Sally, I can hardly wait until you come to Nashville, come to my house, and I'll show you the painting of Maeve from the Dutch house. And then I'm like, all best wishes, Ann Patchett. I mean, like, there, there, I do have my limits, but I should have thought about them more carefully at the beginning. Yeah. Kate, what's the weirdest thing anybody's ever asked you to sign in a book? Oh, I... I'm not doing this show. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's like, nope, nope, nope. I mean, I, and, and I learned that a long time ago. Um, I don't, you know, and we've had many spirited conversations about her doing this. And also, uh, I like, I have voice memos from her where she's reading these things aloud. And, I record and utter, them. Yeah, utter disbelief. Um, you know, this is the thing with, like, with kids... It's like, it's so oddly intimate with a kid Mm -hmm. that um, you don't, they're not going to ask for that. And... And we get that just in the signing line. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's It's just like it is a quick, you know, but I, I, I couldn't do that. And sometimes I cry when I listen to her voice memos, um, not not because it's beautiful, but because I think... <laughs> oh, it's because you're that laughing makes, so hard. That makes my hand hurt to hear that. You know? It's like, that's a lot of writing. There yeah. are also a lot of things that people will ask because they're ordering a book online that they would never ask if we right, were in, in a, a signing, signing line. line. And yeah. people will say, page 293 or whatever is my favorite page of Bel Canto. Will you write out the entire page oh. on the front of, cover of Tom Lake? What? Yeah. No, it's not like this has happened once. This this happens a lot. Wow. Do you think some of this is the TikTok effect? I have no idea. Well, she is a minor TikTok sensation. I'm a minor TikTok sensation. She is a minor. I don't know if you guys know this. Yeah. Okay. How many of you watch the Laydown Diaries? There was some. Okay, but really fewer than I would have thought. Parnassus Books, every Tuesday, we do a video about the books that are coming out that week. And it is, uh, it's, it's bigger it's than a, me. Yeah, it's a minor TikTok sensation. Minor and that's TikTok what she told us in the green As room. declared yes. by Publishers Weekly. Publishers Weekly. Yes, they yes. would know. <laughs> right. Uh, all right, question right down there. So many books are now being um, coming out in like audio versions, Audible, and I wondered if authors have what your role is in selecting who's going to read your book and what? how they're going to read your book. <laughs> My, I have a role in who's going to read the book. I don't have a role in how they're going to read the book. So um, Tom Hanks is a friend of mine, and I asked him, and he said yes. 
And I met Meryl Streep once 15 years ago, and I wrote to her, and I asked her, and she said yes. And then I called the audio department at HarperCollins, and I was like, hey, I just actually went around you without asking, and I got this really great actress to do the audiobook. Do you mind? It's Meryl Streep. They don't ever mind. <laughs> I keep on meaning to tell you that I was walking uh, uh, down my street and uh, a neighbor popped out and said, Kate, Kate, Meryl Streep just said your name. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, so. yes. Yeah. My gosh. Yes. And I will say that the dog in Tom Lake, Hazel, is named for a certain Minneapolis dog who is a friend Ooh. of mine. And, and one of my very favorite parts is when Meryl Streep is going, Hazel, Hazel. Hazel. <laughs> oh. Were you here when two weeks ago when Abraham Verghese described... Do you know this, that Abraham Verghese had to audition to read his own novel? Yeah, he told me that. Yeah. I love it. He seems crazy. Yeah. And, and you did These Precious Days. I do all the nonfiction. Yeah. I don't do the fiction. And why not the fiction? You know, I want whoever is going to be best to read it, and Meryl Streep was going to be best. Wow. <laughs> really? No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, it's almost nine o'clock. Wait, we have somebody. Why don't we? Yeah, why don't we take a couple? We have waving, yep. waving over there. Couple more questions. Is that cool? Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about the play Our Town. It oh, features yeah. so prominently in the book, and I just wondered if there was any special connection for you with the play. I love it, and I have read it probably every year since I was fourteen, and mm. it just. Reminds me to write simply and clearly, and it reminds me to keep my eyes open to the very small things in life because that's what life is. And I feel like I was really shaped by that play, and so my first idea for this book was to write a story about a woman who had played Emily in our town and how that had affected her life. But I just love the play. Thank you for asking. Right back there in the middle. Hi. Hi. <laughs> They're wild, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, is Peter Duke inspired by anyone in particular? <laughs> yeah, Peter Duke was inspired by every guy I went out with in my 20s. <laughs> and uh, I went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And the, oh, don't clap, man. Uh, the, the poets, the poets, they were very deep, and they suffered, and they smoked, and they drank, and they read Stanley Kunitz poems, and they walked in the snow, and they were sad. And I knew that I could comfort them. And help them. <laughs> and teach them how to load a dishwasher. Yeah. <laughs> because I understood them and I loved them very, very much. And I knew that, there was, uh, that it was not within my ability as a writer to explain how sexy poets 
in their 20s could be. And so I made him a movie star. <laughs> yeah. He was pretty sexy. Yeah, he yeah. was. He was. All right. Any, any other questions? It's 9 o'clock, people. I know. We've got, are, how are there, things there? Over are there are drinks there? to be consumed. We, at, can, we can definitely get some She's bar. waving. She's waving at All right. Us. Sorry about that, Kel. Last question, Last, people. Last, make it good. Okay. No pressure. Thank you for the comedy couple of hours we've had. I didn't know that's what we were going to be doing. <laughs> oh, My pleasure. No. Yes. Comedy and guns. That's what we bring. All right. Two of, two of my favorite topics. So yeah. thank you. I am a native Michigander, and so reading Tom Lake and reading about Traverse City and Cherry Country is very dear to my heart, so I was interested in how that became so central to the book for you. I'm going to give you the really short answer. When I was on book tour for Bel Canto in 2001, my publicist sent me to a store called McLean and Aiken in Petoskey, Michigan. To get there, you have to fly to Detroit, take a commuter flight to Traverse City, rent a car, drive two hours, and go to the store, and I wasn't happy. And... It turned out to be my favorite bookstore, and I became very close to the Norcross family, and still am, and they own the store. And when I came back, I bought a cup of cherries in the airport for a dollar and thought, this is really great. I later became friends with a woman named Erin Whiting in Traverse City, and Erin grew up on a cherry farm and later started a professional theater company called Parallel 45. And I thought, when you've got a friend who grew up on a cherry orchard and started a professional theater company, you ought to make use of her. (laughs) And I go to Michigan, and Erin found me the farm. She introduced me to Barb Wunsch, and I went through that farm. Every single detail is Barb's farm. That country, that part of the world, uh, there's nothing better. There's just nothing more beautiful. And it was the perfect place. And I'll tell you, when I started thinking about that book, it was before the pandemic. But the thing about farm children is that they come home and work. Summer vacation is not so you can send your kids to camp and they can knock off French. They, they let them out of school for the summer so they can come back to the farm and work. And that's what farm kids do. So in my mind, these three 20-somethings were just coming home to work. Then the pandemic happened, and I was like, oh, now they're coming home to work, but they can't leave. <laughs> and that made it all the better. <laughs> I love Michigan, and they should be sending me checks. And do you know American, <laughs> do you know American Spoon Preserves? This is who I am as a bookseller, as a bookstore owner. I called American Spoon and asked them to make a special edition Tom Lake Sour Cherry American Spoon Preserves, and they did it, and you can buy it on their website or at Parnassus Books. Yum! (laughs) Yay! Anne, thank you so much for Carrie, a really exceptionally wonderful night. You're the best. You're and, the best. And Minnesota, you're the no, best. No, you're yeah. the best. Yeah. Gosh, hey, thank you. Thank hey, you. thank you. Thank you.